History of Persia is a Hopful Media podcast production. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the History of Persia. I'm Trevor Cully, and this is episode 66, The Syrian Civil War. This episode seemed like a good follow-up to more than a year embroiled in the Greek Wars. Of course, that year involved dips into other topics too, and this episode will be a good follow-up to some of those as well. Really, history did us a favor here. One event in the reign of Artaxerxes I serves as a great excuse to go back and revisit events all the way to Darius's assassination of Bardia. It's really an excellent transition point from the expansionist phase to the maintenance phase of imperial history. Our story begins, more or less as it will end, in Syria. The year was 522 BC, and the army of Cambyses, fresh off the conquest of Egypt, was racing back to Persia. They had recently received word that the king's brother, Bardia, had usurped the throne. That might have been quite confusing for some in Cambyses' camp, because they may have been told that Bardia was already dead. But the issue of right to the throne was soon settled. Cambyses was injured in an accident and was overwhelmed by an infection dying before the army could leave Syria. By all rights, except for the fact that he had preemptively usurped power, this made Bardia king. 
if it really was Bardia. But there was a cohort of six powerful nobles in Cambyses' army who continued to oppose the new king, led by the well-connected Persian chieftain Gobrius. In the version of the story that we're all familiar with, these conspirators added Gobrius's young son-in-law Darius to their ranks. Darius was a distant relative of the royal family, and thus ideally placed to take the throne after Bardia was deposed. They rushed from Syria to Media, where they assassinated Bardia and proclaimed this young Darius king. But among these seven conspirators, there were a few men that we really don't talk about. Of course, there are others, like Gabrius himself, or the treasonous Interfernes, who have come up over the course of the show. But what of Megabizus? Called Bagabuksha in Old Persian, Megabizus was the son of an otherwise unknown noble called Datu Vahya. In Darius's grand proclamation at Behistun, Megabizus' family was given special status in the Achaemenid Empire. We don't know what exactly his role was in the New World Order. He was probably one of the eldest of Darius's conspirators, and likely had been given some position of importance under Cyrus the Great. This may have been a military position, a more peaceful satrapy, or some local governorship. He did not personally lead an army in any of Darius's numerous campaigns, but his son did. This was Zopirus, who mutilated his own face and fled to Babylon, claiming that he had been punished by Darius when the Mesopotamian city rebelled for the second time. As a high-ranking Persian noble from within the new king's inner circle, Zopirus was given command of Babylonian soldiers on the city walls. He used his position to open a gate and lead his own soldiers into a Persian ambush, allowing Darius's forces to retake the city. As a reward, Darius made Zopirus the satrap of Babylonia, one of the empire's largest and wealthiest provinces, spanning from the Zagros Mountains in the east to the Mediterranean in the west. Zopirus would go on to oversee the largely peaceful Persian occupation of Babylonian lands, as Persian nobles, including the extraordinarily wealthy Duke Shish Irdabama, took over large Babylonian estates. But in 486, when Darius the Great died, his son Xerxes immediately had to march to Egypt and deal with a revolt. With the king and his army busy in the west, a pair of Babylonian rebels called Belshimani and Shamash Araba rose up against the Achaemenid regime. Belshimani was either defeated or absorbed into Shamash Araba's rebellion. When the rebels took Babylon itself, they killed Zopirus, while Xerxes was still occupied in the west. That left Zopirus's son, Megabizus, to pick up the pieces. Named after his grandfather, Megabizos followed in his father's footsteps by leading the recapture of Babylon for the Achaemenid dynasty, albeit without any self-mutilation. As a reward for his success and loyalty, Xerxes made Megabizos the new satrap of Babylonia to replace his father, although the territory across the Euphrates River was split off and made into the new satrapy of Assyria. 
Xerxes personally gifted him a large sum of gold as well. And finally, Megabizos was given one last great honor, a royal wedding. He was permitted to marry one of Xerxes' daughters, the Duke Shish Amatis. Just five years later, Megabizos gathered an army once again, surely including a few veterans from both sides of the revolt that killed his father. This time, the Babylonian army joined a great host coming together from all corners of the empire, and marched with Xerxes during his invasion of Greece. Megabizus commanded one-sixth of the infantry, and had the honor of being one of two generals who rode alongside Xerxes as the Persian army crossed the Hellespont. According to Theseus, Xerxes ordered Megabizus to lead a contingent of the army to Delphi, following the victory at Thermopylae, but the Babylonian satrap refused. Xerxes thus ordered that a eunuch called Metakis command that expedition in his stead. Sending such a low-ranking subordinate would have been an insult to Megabizos' royal pride. A small Persian force was sent, and an even smaller Delphic army repelled them from the most sacred city in Greece. Some doubt that Xerxes gave this order to Megabizus because it was only a very small force sent to Delphi, and Megabizus was too high-ranking a general. Others doubt that Megabizus would have refused such a direct order. Then again, perhaps Megabizus was punished for some insubordination or failure. Following the tragic losses at Salome, Megabizus accompanied Xerxes back to Asia and returned to his satrapy. There, Megabizus discovered that Amatus had been unfaithful while he was away, and the satrap had to appeal to the king to reprimand his daughter for this misbehavior. Regardless of Amatus's personal choice of partner, she was born into a political game and was expected to play her part. In 465, Artabanus, the captain of the royal guard, orchestrated a palace coup. Xerxes and his eldest son were murdered, and Xerxes' youngest son, Artaxerxes, was proclaimed king. Megabizus, perhaps thinking of his grandfather, joined the conspirators against Xerxes. However, when Artabanus began expressing ambition to seize the throne for himself, Megabizus betrayed the conspirators and revealed the truth about Xerxes' death to Artaxerxes, who quickly killed Artabanus himself. Megabizus soon found himself leading an army loyal to Artaxerxes against Artabanus' sons and their rebel forces. One imagines that he may have experienced some whiplash in the transition from conspirator to loyalist. Megabizus was even seriously wounded in battle. His family and royal relatives thought he was doomed, but Apollonides, a Greek physician from Kos, saved his life. But why would Megabizus betray the king who had given him everything? His satrapy, his wealth, and his wife all stemmed from Xerxes. But Xerxes gave him disastrous orders. His wife was unfaithful. And it's unclear if he still had his satrapy. At some point after the invasion of Greece, Megabizus was no longer the satrap of Babylonia. Instead, one of Xerxes' sons, Artarios, had taken the reins of the ancient Mesopotamian city. 
Megabizus was reassigned away from the city that had repeatedly cost his own father's blood. He became the satrap of Assyria, or just Syria to the Greeks, where he most likely ruled from Damascus. Megabizus' thoughts, the thoughts of the king that reassigned him, or that king's reasons, are unknown. But the prestige of Babylon was exchanged for the responsibilities of Assyria. As satrap of Assyria, he had penultimate authority over Phoenicia, Cilicia, Cyprus, and the shipyards that facilitated the naval defense of the empire in its ongoing war with Athens. It also made him commander of the most immediately available army when Achaemenes, the satrap of Egypt, was killed in Inaros' uprising of 460. You have to wonder if the death of Achaemenes made Megabizus think back on his own father's death when he was murdered by his own subjects. It was Megabizus who captured and imprisoned the would-be pharaoh Inaros and negotiated amnesty for most of the rebels and Athenians. And it was Megabizos' word that had to be violated when Artaxerxes ordered Inaros and the Athenian leaders' execution. And Megabizos led the Persian army in Cilicia, when a detachment of the Athenian navy broke away from their invasion of Cyprus in 451. Megabizos was forced to retreat, but avoided a repeat of the earlier disaster on the banks of the Eurymedon. The Athenians were also forced to withdraw, and Megabizos' army remained intact along with the Persian navy to participate in the defense of Cypriot Salome the next year. Megabizos also joined Artabazos in negotiating with Athens to bring an end to the Greco-Persian War initiated by Xerxes 30 years earlier. And so, in 449, Megabizos found himself a ruler at peace in Damascus for the first time. He had fought Babylonian rebels, Greek defenders, Egyptian rebels, and Greek invaders. He had followed in his father's footsteps to conquer Babylon and be named Satrap, and in his grandfather's footsteps to betray one king and support another through a civil war. Through all of this conflict, he had been wounded and occasionally shamed, but his ultimate position had remained relatively stable. That must have made it all the more surprising when Megabizus' relationship with Artaxerxes completely deteriorated in the mid-440s. I routinely wish that I knew more languages. Even right in the middle of the US, I run into Spanish speakers all the time, and my social media always has a little Persian, Arabic, some Dutch, and German. Rosetta Stone does help. It's the most trusted language learning program after all. It's also conveniently available on desktop or on the go as an app and has some really cool features that truly immerse you in the language you're learning. Just the first steps, like learning a new alphabet and some simple phrases, helped open new doors, and Rosetta Stone is a great choice as the trusted expert in this for 30 years and millions of users with 25 languages available to learn. They focus on fast language acquisition, without English translations to help you learn, speak, listen, and think in your new language while building long-term retention. 
Their true accent speech recognition also gives feedback on pronunciation, which can be really important for languages like Persian, where how you say something is very important. And on top of being available for desktop and mobile, you have the option to download lessons and take them offline. This is also all available at a steal. You can get lifetime membership, all 25 languages, for 50% off. Don't put off learning that new language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, History of Persia listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. Theseus is the lone historian for the late stages of Megabyzus' story, and does not provide exact dates. But sometime after the Peace of Callias was signed in 449, Assyria stopped paying tribute to the imperial treasury. To put that in political terms, Megabyzus went into revolt. The military strength of Assyria mostly came from naval dominance in the Mediterranean at this point. But Megabyzus ruled over a relatively sparse population to call up for a land army, which he would need to fight Artaxerxes' forces. But the rebel satrap had one ace up his sleeve. The Athenians, captured at the Mendesian mouth of the Nile, at the tail end of Inaros' revolt, were still imprisoned in Phoenicia. Megabyzus offered them arms, payment, and freedom if they fought in his army. He hired additional Greek mercenaries, veterans from Greece's recent wars between Athens and Sparta, and called on his own local militias to prepare for the inevitable reprisal from Artaxerxes. It is hard to overemphasize the legacy of these two decisions, one to go into revolt at all, and the second to hire Greek mercenaries. Megabyzus was the first person to do that, in fact, he's actually the first known satrap to go into revolt without trying to claim the imperial throne. We've had a few princes who also happened to be satraps use their positions to make a play for power. We've had local elites try to leave the empire. We've even had one satrap, Oroitis of Lydia, quietly start acting independently ages ago. We've had one around the same time, Ariandes of Egypt get accused of plotting a revolt. But we've never actually seen a satrap fight the king before. We will see lots of satraps with Greek mercenaries fight the king in the future. The first response flipped Megabyzus's previous military experience on its head. While Megabyzus led an army of local rebels and Greek mercenaries, an Egyptian army invaded Syria on Artaxerxes' behalf. The commander was the son of a mixed Persian-Egyptian family called Osiris. When the Egyptian force confronted the rebels, the two armies did not immediately clash. Instead, Osiris challenged Megabyzus to single combat. This is actually a thing that happened on rare occasions in the ancient world. 
individual representatives of opposing armies would square off in the no-man's land between their own forces. This almost never succeeded in settling the conflict without bloodshed, but the duels were ways for the aristocratic officers to display their personal prowess. Oftentimes, single combat presented the opportunity to take out key commanders from the opposing army, which could have a genuine strategic impact. In this case, Osiris challenged Megabyzus himself, probably because this was Megabyzus' own personal rebellion. It was not a campaign for true Assyrian independence, which could never be allowed to secede. It was the connective tissue between the Eastern Empire and the Western provinces of Anatolia and Africa. If Megabyzus was killed, the rebellion would almost certainly just come to an end. Thus, Osiris and Megabyzus squared off against one another in a cavalry duel. Remember, Persian cavalry was still primarily a light cavalry affair, typically armed with bows and arrows or a quiver of javelins. So when the two horses charged one another, it was not a joust aiming to ram one another, but two riders hurling javelins across the field. As the horses rushed forward, javelins flew through the air and struck Megabyzus in the thigh, penetrating through his armor and piercing his flesh about one inch deep. But the horses continued to push forward, and Megabyzus was able to return the favor, inflicting a similar wound on Osiris. Megabyzus was also able to score a second hit, this time striking Osiris in the shoulder. The Egyptian fell from his horse, and the duel was over. Megabyzus ordered his men to seize his opponent and take him back to the rebel camp to treat his wounds. Apollonides of Kos, still serving as Megabyzus' household physician, may have treated Osiris's wounds as the two armies prepared for battle. Wounded himself, Megabyzus could not lead from the front. Instead, his sons took command of the rebel army. The elder, Zopirus, was named for his own grandfather according to Persian tradition, and the younger brother was called Artifios. Both served with distinction in a battle that saw significant Persian cavalry casualties on both sides. Ultimately, Osiris's injuries were not serious, and he was soon released from Megabyzus' camp. But rather than returning to Egypt, Megabyzus sent the Egyptian commander to Persia to deliver a message to Artaxerxes. Theseus does not record Megabyzus' demands, but Artaxerxes did not respond to them, so it hardly matters. Instead, he placed his brother, Satrap Artarius of Babylon, in charge of dealing with the rebellion. And a new army was sent to invade Assyria from the east. This time, the commander was Artarius' son, Menosthenes. And once again, Megabyzus was faced with a strange parallel. He was now the rebel, leading an army along the Euphrates River, while the son of the Babylonian satrap led the loyalist forces against him. These parallels would be too poetic for reality, but none of them are recorded in the same place. These similarities are not intentional from any ancient author. This is just the story of Megabyzus' life. Theseus is not clear whether Menosthenes and Megabyzus fought another duel, or if Menosthenes was just wounded in battle. 
He says that the son of the satrap was struck in the shoulder by Megabizus's javelin and then later wounded with an arrow hit to his head, either grazing his skin or denting his helmet. The wound was not fatal, but the Persian army was forced to retreat while the rebels claimed victory. After his son returned with multiple wounds, Artarius opened negotiations with Megabizus and encouraged him to sign a treaty with Artaxerxes or face a larger response from a royal army rather than just provincial garrisons from his immediate neighbors. Megabizus agreed. All he wanted was for Artaxerxes to negotiate a settlement and answer some of his demands. But he wisely refused to leave Assyria. He knew that if he left his own territory without an army, he would immediately be captured. Artaxerxes actually respected Megabizus' hesitance and organized a delegation to Damascus, headed up by Artarius. The satrap of Babylon was joined by Amatis, who was Megabizus' wife, but had remained loyal to the royal family and stayed in her brother's court during this war. They were joined by Petasus, an Egyptian official and the father of the recently wounded Osiris to represent Egypt's interests and the recently defeated army. The party was rounded out by a 20-year-old eunuch called Artoxeres, who was an important official in the Iranian colonies on the Black Sea in Anatolia. Why exactly Artoxeres was involved is harder to say, but he may have been sent on behalf of one of the Anatolian satraps on Megabizus' northern border. The two parties went back and forth with negotiations and counter-negotiations. All four of the royal representatives swore oaths to ensure Megabizus' personal safety and the safety of his sons, something that Amatus was doubtlessly campaigning for as well. The catch was that Megabizus himself could not personally remain satrap of Assyria. He would face no further punishment, but he had to go east and live with the royal court as a political hostage. He would be comfortable, wealthy, and relatively free, but he did have to move to Persia. Megabizus was hesitant, but agreed to the terms of this settlement. Ultimately, Zopirus, Megabizus's eldest son, would enjoy the political benefits of his father's revolt. Zopirus became the new satrap of Assyria, while his father moved to the royal court. Megabizus became friends with the eunuch Artoxeres over the course of the negotiations, and Artaxerxes awarded his young negotiator with his own position in the royal chancellery. Both men became friends with the king during their time at court, but the relationship soured following a particularly dramatic hunting trip. Hunting was a favorite activity of royal courts all through history, but in the ancient Near East, there was a long-standing tradition that lions were a beast fit only for kings. As such, when Artaxerxes was attacked and wounded by a lion on one hunt and Megabizus intervened to kill it, Artaxerxes did not see a trusted friend saving his life. Instead, the king was furious and saw this as a former rebel usurping a royal prerogative. The king was set to have Megabizus beheaded, but his sister and their mother intervened on Megabizus's behalf. 
Queen Mother Amestris was able to convince her son to simply send Megabizus into exile in Kirta, on the Red Sea coast of Egypt, far away from the center of comfort and culture. Artoxeres the eunuch spoke out of turn in Megabizus's defense and was sentenced to his own exile in Armenia, likewise far away from the centers of power. Megabizus found this punishment intolerable, and within a few years he disguised himself as a leper to flee back to Damascus, where Amatis was able to negotiate with Artaxerxes once again on her husband's behalf. Artaxerxes' temper had cooled with time, and he pardoned Megabizus. When Megabizus eventually died, Artaxerxes grieved the loss of a friend, but Artaxerxes was forced to remain in Armenia for the rest of the king's reign. Even though the rest of Megabizus' life was relatively uneventful, his family remained one of the loudest and most dramatic noble clans in the Achaemenid Empire. Some of their exploits just fall into the category of court drama, while others reflect the political changes of the late 5th century BCE. But that will be the topic next time, as I explore the politics of empire under Artaxerxes I. There will be new developments and maybe a few old friends, but Artaxerxes' reign marched ever onward, ultimately leaving Megabizus as a simple part of history. Until next time, thank you all so much for listening to The History of Persia. If you want more information about this show, you can go to historyofpersiapodcast.com, where you will find things like my bibliography, The Persian Family Tree, and the support page, where you can find different ways to financially support this project. That includes one-time payments through Stripe, or Patreon subscriptions, where there's also free ways to support the podcast, like leaving a rating on your platform of choice, or sharing on social media. You can find me on Twitter at History of Persia, or Facebook and Instagram at History of Persia Podcast. Until next time, thank you all so much for listening to The History of Persia. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. 
book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.